You're listening to the best morning routine ever podcast, the show that proves no one stumbles upon success ever. With your host, Lou Need. Every Mondays and Thursdays, we deliver cold heart evidence behind the power of a robust morning routine. Get ready to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hello, morning enthusiasts. Welcome to the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lunid, and today I have the honor of introducing a very special guest to the show, Abby Shemesh. Now, he is the co-founder and senior managing member at Marinote Exchange and has been operating in the primary and secondary mortgage market for over two decades. So he has a wealth of knowledge uh, when it comes to financing, when it comes to like mortgages, and so loan origination, you name it, commercial, residential. So, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm excited to have him on board. And he has a well-decorated um, background being seen in interviews, Yahoo News, um, you know, you name it. So with no further ado, Abby, welcome to the show. Dr. Lunid, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to chatting. Of course, it's been such a delight. I'm hearing about your background and your experience, and you've been at this for over um, two decades. Tell us about how it got started and, and why that avenue for you. It's a good question. Um, my journey started back in the late 1990s. Uh, I was back then. You had a, a a mortgage, so there was some a lot of changes that went through our House of Representatives in the late 90s. Uh, something called Glass Steagall, which was an act that was put in place by uh, Roosevelt, which was repealed by the, the powers that be, both the Clinton administration and, of course, the Republican. Mm-hmm. Congress at that time, which led to the furious approach of mortgage business taking off in the 2000s, something called the subprime boom. Uh, So we really got into it. I got into it at that point, 1999 in Pennsylvania. And I uh, started my journey in regular mortgage lending. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith walks into a bank, they borrow money. I was the type of person that they would speak to at a mortgage lender. So I, I started at a small firm worked my way out through the industry. And really what happened, it's just real traditional mortgage lending. And then Mm -hmm. uh, in the mortgage business, you would have, if you were a mortgage lender, you would have different banks and institutions come to your location and they would say, hey, guys and gals, what do you have? This is our new products. This is what we have. What kind of deals are you looking at? And they would try to sell their loan products to us. And there was a, a now failed bank called Bear Stearns. I don't know if yourself or your listeners remember, but back in the 2008, mid-2000s, this bank did go under. But before it went under, our Bear Stearns account executive came to our office and said, hey, I am leaving. I am going to acquisitions. This is your new account rep. And I said, okay, nice to meet you. But what's acquisitions? I don't understand. So this uh, person started to explain to me mortgage acquisitions was, and that is what they call the secondary mortgage market. And this opened up my eyes to the secondary mortgage market, which is the... So just to give you an idea, you and I, we walk into a bank or a mortgage lender to borrow money on a piece of real estate that we either want to live in or rent out or whatever it is. Once that loan is created... That loan, whoever you're making payments to, like let's say it's Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo has the legal right and ability to sell that mortgage loan. Now, you still make payments on it, 
but you can sell the property. You own the property, but Wells Fargo or whoever the lender is owns the mortgage loan. So you can sell the property. They can sell the mortgage loan. And they do that. And um, you know that's what we do. We, we now, that is the acquisition side. So when I learned about this, I, it really piqued my interest. And that in late 2004, early 2005, I made the full transition from the primary mortgage market, which is lending money, to the secondary mortgage market, which is trading and purchasing mortgage loans once they're created. So that's the acquisition piece of it. And that happens quite frequently. And even with a car note, you know, you finance a car, you will get a new letter that says your new loan manager or banker is, you know, blah, 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 compared to it's no longer Wells Fargo. So what are some of the reasons that this happens? Is it lower interest? What What is it in it for the, for you who is actually selling it? Good question. Good question. So I can tell you that loans are bought and sold all the time. And you know, just to give you a, a kind of backtrack here a little bit, uh, debt has been traded and purchased and sold from what I understand going back to the Roman Empire, right? So it, it's been around, debt trading has been around for millennia. It really started to take off in the 1970s where mortgage trading happened. Now, mortgage purchasing has been going on for quite some time, obviously. But to answer your question directly, what is in it? How do we profit? So a mortgage lender will sell loans. Let's say that you have a million dollars, you know, a bank, and they make 10 loans at $100,000 each to 10 different people. And now they go, okay, we're collecting these 30-year loans, we're making 7% interest, but you know, I'd really like to make more loans. Now, banks don't have that problem. We can kind of get into that. The Federal Reserve and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are put into place so banks don't have to sell their loans, right? They can just mm-hmm. constantly get subsidized money from the government. But mortgage lenders, regular mortgage lenders and investors, like ones who are not affiliated with the federal government, have to recycle their capital. So they sell loans to free up their cash so they can continuing lending money to other people because their money is now tied up with these 10 loans, their million dollars mm-hmm. now tied up. So they look, they can get the million dollars back and collect interest if they want to wait 30 years, or they can sell three of their $100,000 loans. So $300,000 and we'll buy those three $100,000 loans for $285,000, right? So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we won't pay a hundred cents on the dollar, we'll pay slightly under, in some cases way under, depending on the structure of the loan and the characteristics and the circumstances. But we uh, usually buy loans for either slightly less or a little bit more than less than what they're owed for. And then what we do is we have no problem waiting 10, 20, 30 years to collect a return on investment. But we're just looking for a nice, safe place to put our money at a nice, decent return, because that's the investment strategy. So that's what we get out of it. And that's what folks in our industry, that's why loans are traded, because lenders need to recycle capital into new investments. And buyers want to place their money into safe investments that are non-correlated to the markets. And what that means is the stock market is very ingrained with Wall Street, and the global financial economic system. So if someone sneezes in Algeria, <laughs> you know the the stock uh, New York Stock Exchange crashes. Of course, I'm being hyperbolic, but you know what I mean. That's a very yeah. correlated 
investment. Non-correlated investment is American real estate. It's definitely has, it's connected to certain things, but American real estate is a safe haven for the globe, right? So there's a lot of investors that come to America to invest in American real estate all over the place because it's a very decentralized open system that allows anyone to participate regardless of the position you're in, you know, or anything else. If you want to participate, you have the free right and will to do so. So that's why a lot of people are attracted to the American real estate market, but it's non-correlated and that's where we want to put our money. So we're diversified. Yeah. And I want to talk to you in a little bit about the commercial versus the residential, but let's Mm -hmm. talk about the trading happening. Uh, It seems like it's happening in the back scenes, yet the customer has no idea it's happening. It seems like the wheels are turning daily and these Mm -hmm. these decisions, these tradings are are going on, Mm -hmm. yet the, the customer, the consumer, just gets a notification that it has been done. Uh, okay. That is correct. Now, how does that work in building trust, especially like with the bank, the big failure that just happened recently? Again, it we just get notified. It's in the news yeah. that this happened. And if you're a customer, like you had, you had no control, no say about it, but how does that work to build trust in this like space? Yeah, no, that's a valid and thoughtful question. That is, you know, I, I can only provide the answer that I see from my experience on the perch of life that I'm viewing. I'm sure there's many answers for many different people, Yeah, but I can tell you as a, let's I'm going to use, I'm going to use a couple of analogies here as an auto mechanic working under the hood of the vehicle all day. The way it is meant to be is that the person who owns the property owns the property. And the person who owns the mortgage or the entity that owns a mortgage owns a mortgage. So if you as a property, not you, but if a property Mm -hmm. owner wants to rent the property on Airbnb, you know, if I want to rent my property, you want to rent your property, we don't have to notify the bank that we're doing that. We don't need to get their permission. We don't need to notify them. If you want to run, you know, assuming it's legal within the the jurisdiction that the property is located, if you want to run a business out of the property, typically you have to get permission from the county and the, the, the city and all that, but you definitely don't need to get permission from the lender, the bank. It's your property. The same thing occurs on the banking side with the loan. So they own that loan when you sign, when a person signs those documents. Now, that's the way that it's structured. Mm-hmm. As far as trust is concerned, well, that's a whole other story there. And <laughs> there is a a tug of war right now in our society as to the protections that are afforded to us under certain uh, jurisdictions, bureaucratic or constitutional, whatever you want to call it, you know, in business, like for instance, the safety is the FDIC. If you have cash in the Mm -hmm. bank account, that's what I would be more concerned with is building trust with holding money in a bank account right now than necessarily holding loans. The banks have a trust issue for sure. And the trust issue is ongoing and has been ongoing for quite some time. The only thing that a person like you and I, uh, citizens can do is to fortify ourselves to make the process as trustless as possible. What I mean by that is, I think, and this is just me spitballing here, that the solution in all matters and forms come from permissionless, trustless systems. 
That sounds a lot like cryptocurrency. It sounds a lot like mm-hmm. Bitcoin. And I, I'm, I'm saying that on purpose. Our constitution, I am not a constitutional expert. I don't agree or disagree, You know, condone or condemn any of the stuff that's going on right now. But we have the most, from what I can see, we have the most decentralized form of government. Whether or not it's being used as that currently, it was put into place as decentralized form. I believe that that is an ingredient, whether it be a major ingredient or not, for a key for building trust through trustless systems. It's time to stop trusting human beings and start trusting systems that are transparent, open source. I'm saying a lot of fancy words here. I don't know how. I'm not an engineer. I don't know how to put that into place. But the only thing a citizen can do is understand that they are going to own that property. And that property value is going to be determined by what our federal government does at a monetary level, because the Federal Reserve putting money in and taking money out controls the value of property. It controls the value of gold. It controls the value of stocks, controls the value of Bitcoin. It controls the value. So the banks may actually be at the mercy of that as well. Now, they have all of these, they have tons of exit strategies. Like you hear what happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, how the executives were selling shares. Mm -hmm. That is not acceptable, in my opinion. And I will just go on the record saying that. Uh, How that is being fixed, I don't necessarily know. Or let me put it this way. I'm not prepared to venture a guess right now because I do want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, including our government, including our citizens, including our business sector. But there are bad actors everywhere. And Mm -hmm. um, the only way that someone, to answer your question directly, I would say building trust requires citizens to start looking out for themselves. So you heard of the term prepper. I'm going to prep. I'm going to be a prepper. I'm not suggesting that you fill your shelves with canned food, although that's a form of prepping. I suggest that you or your listeners, myself included, start financial prepping. Okay, I got real estate. Maybe I should start buying physical gold. Physical gold has been around 5,000 years. It's been a hedge against money printing and governments. It's seen governments come and go. And I can give you the gold analogy that kind of floats around on, on how that works. But gold freezes your wealth in time across space. What do I mean by that? Let's go, you and I, we're going to get into a time machine right now. And you and I are going to go back to the Roman Empire. Again, we're going to mention the Roman Empire. Let's, even better, ancient Egypt right? 5,500 years ago, 6,000 years ago, whatever it may be. And we take with us a ounce of gold, an American gold eagle, an ounce of gold. And an ounce of gold, forgive me if I'm wrong, I'm, maybe some of your listeners will fact check me. As of today, I'm pretty sure an ounce of gold is somewhere between $1,700 and $1,900 for one ounce. So we go back with an ounce of gold and we walk through the market in ancient Egypt. We can buy a nice toga, Maybe we can buy a nice pair of leather sandals. We can buy, you know, a nice gold necklace or some leather, you know, accessories. And we come out looking pretty sharp. That's Mm -hmm. what gold will buy us. Now we take that same ounce of gold. We get back into our time machine and we come to March of 2023. And you and I will go to Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or Saks Fifth Ave. Not the outlets, the real ones. 
And we take that same ounce of gold in the form of dollars, about 1800, 1900 bucks. I, guess what? I can go in, I can buy a nice suit. I can buy a nice pair of shoes. I can buy a nice watch, maybe, you know, a nice tie. That's my point is that regardless if it was 5,500 years ago or present day, that if you try to take a dollar with you or a hundred dollar bill back to ancient Egypt, they would go, what, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. An ounce of gold can travel through space and time and still retain its value through the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Egyptian dynasties, the, the rise of the British Empire, the rise of the Holland and the French Empire. Some would say the rise of the American Empire, if that's the way you want to say it. But it survives. Others say Bitcoin is that is that new digital uh, form of gold. I tend to say that there's a lot to be interested about there. But there's times now where we start prepping and accumulating anything you can to hedge against this and maybe taking cash out of the bank, maybe not holding dollar bills under your mattress, maybe moving it from a bank to a credit union, maybe moving it from a bank to like fidelity, like a, uh, an investment house where it doesn't fall under the banking rules, but you can still have a banking checking account, savings account there. You just diversify, you just position yourself. And we're all in this little blue ball together. We just got to go with the flow, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Diversify your portfolio is Correct. one way to ensure that you're prepping, you're securing your own wealth instead of just kind of really letting it go and let somebody else control it, um, not knowing what's going to happen because there are, as you said, there are bad apples. Um, There's no bad apples everywhere. And, you know, they sneeze (laughs) like that analogy. They sneeze and then, you know, everything crumbles and your money just poof, like magic um, disappears and then have to be bailed out. FDIC comes in and I cannot imagine that hasn't happened to me, but I can imagine that process being seamless. You know what I mean? I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to add to that. You know, if you're not holding $250,000 or more in a bank account, theoretically, you should be okay. Now, the FDIC bailed out all accounts through Silicon Valley Bank, even over $250,000. So, from what I, I am not a Silicon Valley Bank member I've ne- or, or customer, I've never been. But from what I understand, and from some of my associates that are customers, that they were told that the money wasn't available. The FDIC came in and then the next day their accounts were open. They claimed it was seamless. I am with you in believing that if this happens on a mass scale, it's not going to be as seamless. There's going to be winners. There's going to be losers. So what do you do? Maybe you don't hold your whole life savings in one bank. I highly recommend that people look into credit unions. I am not suggesting that credit unions are not vulnerable to our economic landscape, but it's, again, a form of diversification. I am also a believer in, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, dollar cost averaging, which is a term used, like, for instance, if someone were, I I don't recommend doing this in stocks unless you know what stocks you want to hold for a long time. But if you want to, there's two different forms of strategy. Either you, you can buy and hold long, long term, or you can buy and consider, uh, be prepared to hold short, which means you're going to get out of that investment in a couple of weeks, a day, whatever. You, you're hopscotching in and out of investments. Now, I am not a short-term investor. Most of the time, I usually am a buy and hold. I want to set it and forget it. I don't want to deal 
with stock prices and all, you know, I'm not a trader. I'm not a trader, mm-hmm. nor do I want to be. It's only loan, only mortgage loans. Only mortgage loans. I, you know, we will buy and hold on certain, uh, you know, from a, a professional standpoint in the real estate industry, you know, whether we're buying, I'm buying real estate personally, or our company is buying mortgages. Sometimes we buy distressed assets, but, you know, we do dabble in the digital asset space, which is the crypto space. And I say, we, I'm not suggesting that this company does, but this company works with crypto wealth, crypto investors that want to diversify out of crypto and buy mortgage loans, right? So they want to say, they say, hey, Abby, we are too heavy in crypto. We want to diversify back into what they call finance 1.0. We want to invest, we want to be invest in real estate. We want to invest in mortgage loans. So I am well-versed for not, you know, an engineer, but I'm well-versed in the crypto space, specifically Bitcoin. And I can tell you that if someone trusts and understands a digital commodity like Bitcoin, they can cost dollar average by going onto an exchange and setting a reminder or a a purchase every month, I'm going to buy a slice of Bitcoin for $20. And you just every month, it just buys a piece of wherever Mm -hmm. the price is, it just buys and that's called cost dollar, dollar averaging. And before you know it, a year and a half, two years, three years down the road, you go, oh my God, I got a full Bitcoin and it's worth $300,000. You know what I mean? And now mm-hmm. you've just removed the money that would just be sitting in the bank and you slowly canaled it over to this other asset that may be more protective and take care of your money better, whether that's physical gold in a safe, you know, gold stocks that you buy, gold mining stocks, physical silver, Bitcoin, more property, maybe you like property, maybe you go out and you buy more property. That's just another form of a an investment vehicle that shelters and protects your money that typically has upside. Now, I will say that property is still the safest and most reliable form of wealth building out there as far as the data is concerned. Gold, buying gold will not make you rich. It will just freeze your wealth in place. In Bitcoin, time. yeah, in time across Bitcoin may make you rich, but it will it should eventually, like as long as you plan on holding it for longer than four years, I don't think there's anyone on this planet that's hold that bought Bitcoin and held it longer than four years that didn't make money. Yeah. If you sell it before four years, you you may lose money. But if you hold it longer than four, four and a half years, I mean, according to the 14 years of data that we have, everyone's made money that's hold it longer than four years. So let's talk about the safe option now, residential, real estate. Now, tell us about the, um, because there's both residential and commercial, but I'm curious about the future mortgage payment. How can users utilize that? So I'm going to answer your question with a question, which I don't usually do on these types of uh, interactions. But when you say future mortgage payments, are you talking about payments that people are making? For payments that people are collecting on, because there are two different types. Let's dig into both. The okay. People, people collecting on, yeah. So we serve lenders, and uh, lenders doesn't have to be Wells Fargo and Chase Manhattan. It can be Mister and Mister Jones or Mrs. and Mrs. Smith down the street. We we service all of them. You know, we we do it all. And so, if you are having payments come in every month, a lot of the times people will be collecting an interest rate. So let's say that you sold your property and the property is 150,000. And the person who bought the property said, you know what? I'm self-employed. I can't get a loan at the bank. 
but I got 50,000 in cash and my credit's good. The bank won't give me a loan because I'm self-employed. You know, I, I can't get a loan from the bank. So we'll just say the Joneses, they decide, they go, okay, what we're going to do is we own the property free and clear. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to finance you the equity in my property and you just pay me over time. I will take the 50,000 as a down payment. You will owe me 100,000 over the next 30 years. And I'm going to charge you 7%. That's exactly what a bank would charge you if you were to walk into a bank today. They charge you about 7%. So I'm going to charge you 7%. Now, to some people, that could be a retirement account. Now, you're, for the next 30 years or until they pay it off, you and your family are going to be collecting from this other person who's going to live in the property. They're going to be collecting a monthly payment of you know whatever that payment is. And um, it, it's going to be great. Now, what usually happens is about no, 12, 24, 36 months in, one, two, three years in, the people who are collecting the payments go, man, you know, I think we can, there's a really good investment property down the street. We got this money. We got about a hundred thousand tied up into this mortgage note, but you know, we can't force this person to pay us off early because we signed a contract telling them they have 30 years to pay us off. So what do we do? Well, we do a Google search. How do I, how do I cash out of a mortgage? And they're going to come across a company like ours. And we're going to tell them that on that $100,000 loan, they can sell that $100,000 loan for almost up to about 95 grand on a good day, assuming that the loan is looking good. So they go, well, okay, well, we can, instead of waiting 29 and a half years or 28 years, I can just sell this right now for 95 grand. And now we can go buy that investment property down the street. That's how people could utilize our service on payments that they are collecting. Mm. The only thing I would recommend is you just don't haphazardly wake up one day and go, I'm going to sell the mortgage note that I'm collecting yeah. on. Because if you don't have a, a use for the money, there's no reason to lose the interest that you're going to collect and take a discount and sell it for $5,000 less than your own. But if you know that you're going to take that money you're going to put it into an investment that's going to make you your $5,000 back that you lost. Maybe yeah. instead of making 7%, you're now you're going to make 10% because you're going to buy this property and you're going to make a 10% return just renting it. Well, that makes sense. Now, selling the mortgage show makes a whole heck of a lot more sense. So that is a good candidate. We are not a one-size-fits-all, but we can walk through the strategy. Now, a lot of other people may say, well, I, you know, I don't have an investment I want to do. But I'm having a lifestyle change. You know, I, I'm tired of working at my job. I inherited a note from, you know, Uncle Fred, and I don't want to collect. I'm getting four hundred dollars a month for the next twenty years. I mean, the four hundred dollars a month is great, but I'd rather use the eighty thousand dollars instead that the note's worth. So, I don't have an investment. I, I want to move to Mexico. I want to move to Florida. I want to move to California. Whatever it is, I want to buy a ranch. Well, that. Then it becomes a question, okay, well, we can buy that. Eight, I'm just using 80000 as an example on a totally new example here. So they inherited it from Uncle Fred. It's an $80,000 note. It has $79,000 remaining, and you're getting $400 a month. Well, we, maybe we can buy that $79,000 note for sixty to 63000 because it's not as pretty as the other note that we were talking about. Okay, I'll take the sixty-two thousand. I don't really care if I, you know, I, I just want a peace of mind. I want my emotional well-being to take the 13, 14, 15% discount and not have to wait 20 years, it's worth it for me to have a peace of mind. And now I can start my new life. I can, you know, relax. I 
I can take this money, I can put it into a money market, I can put it into treasuries, I can put it into a an Airbnb, I can put it into a garden that I want to, you know, spend the rest of my life in retirement. That's up to them. So we have many different ways that we can help people collecting on mortgages. That's not just people, institutions, companies that take notes back, like con- contractors, construction companies, believe it or not, bail bonds uh, companies mm-hmm. are ones that take notes back. Banks approach us that, you know, we deal with banks. Uh, 40% of our clients are banks and lenders. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk about the folks who are making payments. Our company cannot provide services to those folks because we deal directly with lenders, but I can provide some insight as to what folks could do if they are mm-hmm. making payments on a note. And let's assume that they're making payments and they're not necessarily happy with the fact that they got to continue making payments. They want to sell the property, but they can't sell the property because there's properties aren't selling right now. The economy is not that great. What I would do in that situation, it's not going to be a one size fits all, but it would be a most one size fits most, right? Is, mm-hmm. is this kind of a thing is I would start looking at the rental market. There's something called rent to own or lease option. I don't know if you've heard of this. Maybe some of your mm-hmm. listeners heard of this, but you can start beginning the exit, the off-ramping, the exiting of this property and this mortgage. Of course, you're, good. you're responsible for servicing that debt, meaning you're responsible for making that monthly payment to your lender. But maybe you can find someone else to make that monthly payment to your lender so you don't have to worry about it. Now, this may not solve all your issues. It, you know, Maybe you want to get rid of that monthly payment. You want to go out and buy a new house. This may not solve that problem now, but it may solve that problem slower than you may want, but at least it won't, you know, you're not going to lose your balance and fall over and lose everything. You know, you may have to tiptoe towards your goal, which is fine to some, to some it may not be. We'll, we'll kind of get into the different strategies. So if you just want to sell and be done with it, that's your only option. If you're making a mortgage payment, either you go out to a bank and you refinance you get a lower interest rate or whatever you want to do. And then you have another bank that you have to pay. Maybe that's not a good thing. The other way to get out of your mortgage payment is to sell the property. Now, you may be able to sell it on seller financing, where just like my example previously, you can't, you know, maybe no one's, maybe people are coming to you and say, you're trying to sell the property for 100,000 and you have people coming to you and saying, I'll pay 80,000, I'll pay 70,000. You're like, no way. Well, what happens if you start? targeting it through marketing a person like who will give you your 100,000 they will give you 20 30 50,000 dollars down and then they will give you monthly payments over the next 5 years and then in 5 years you'll have all your money that's owed to you and then you'll be done with it at least you can get a nice chunk of money now a lump sum of money now and you have your money instead of being sitting in a bank collecting no interest you know, have this money in a note collecting five, six, seven, eight percent interest. Hopefully, this may get it done for most of the listeners out there, but you would start mm-hmm. targeting seller financing, willing to carry paper, meaning that you're willing to seller finance the equity in your property. Now, if you owe money on a to a bank on this, you'd want to consult an attorney or a title company, but that would be referred to as a wraparound 
mortgage. So if you were to, if you owe money to a bank and you want to sell the property, you can wrap a mortgage and sell your property to someone else and make sure that the title company or the attorney makes sure that it's completely legal, that you're not violating a due on sales clause with your previous lender. Once all that's done, you can start targeting self-employed, you know, you know, Craigslist ad or however you want to do it. Attention, all self-employed people looking to buy a house. I am willing to sell this property on owner financing, assuming that you can put 30% down. I will be more than happy to have open communication with you. Please reach out to me. You make sure that you have that. I would even be more than happy if you have a listener out there that has questions. I would be more than happy to provide guidance. My company would be more than happy to provide guidance on where to go, what to do, what the action items are, who to talk to. It's really not that difficult. You go to a title company, a title company will set you up. So that's number one. Number two, if you say, well, I don't necessarily want to do that, what else you got? Well, another thing may be, hey, you do a rent to own or a lease option, right? So you, instead of making a $400 monthly payment to your lender, you now try to rent the property out for $700 a month, assuming that the rental market will align with that. And now you can rent it out and have that person pay your rent. Or if you don't want to even deal with the property anymore, you can rent it out and you can tell the new tenant, hey, look, in three years, I'm giving you the option to buy this. And every month, you're going to give me the $700 for rent, and then you're going to give me another $250 extra. And that extra money is going to go towards your down payment at the end of three years. But if you decide that you don't want to buy the property at the end of three years, I get to keep all that extra money. It's called an option capital, option money. It's very very standard and a lease option. So you get all, you get a nice, you get first, you get last, you get security. You start getting the monthly payment. You get the extra $250. Now you're flush with money and you have a, a promise that this person's going to pay your mortgage over the next three years. Yeah. And at the end of three years, they have to come in with bank financing and pay you off. And then you get this massive lump sum. And if they don't perform under the laws of eviction of that jurisdiction, you get them out. You get a new tenant in. You now monetize your debt. Very simple. Very simple. Nice. And then you, so you get to keep the extra money so you don't lose out on much. Correct. So do you, what are some of the advice that you have for people who successfully do sell their home? What do they do with the proceeds? Yeah. What do you suggest? Right. That is a great question. And that most people that sell their home are going to want to buy another home, right? Most. And to those, I say this, we are in a unique time right now where Maybe some of your listeners are, you know, of the, and I hate to use these generational terms. I'm just going to use them because it's easy to kind of, the, the Gen Zers, right? So the folks who are in their mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s, you know, they're just getting started. I would say this when you guys were coming, you guys and gals were coming up over the past 12, 14 years, houses and house prices looked like you couldn't afford anything because interest rates were 2%. Everyone had money in their pocket. Everyone had, you know, for the, I say everyone, I don't mean the average person, but I'm saying all the hedge funds, all the investment firms, all the banks, everyone was flush with cash. So they were scooping up as many assets as possible. So if you are, you sell your house, now you have some money in your bank account or in however you're deciding to hold it or multiple bank accounts, I would highly recommend that you too target for sale by owner people who are looking to sell. How do you do this? You look for properties that have been on the market 
for more than 90 days, 120 days, 180 days. Why? Why have these properties been on the market so long? Is the person asking too much? Is the economy bad? Is it the mortgage rates? Something's going on. You approach them and you let them, hopefully, it will be because they're, they have a set price. They don't care. They want their price. You know, I want my $150,000. i am not taking any, a penny less. Okay. You approach them with your newly found cash from your sale and you say, I will give you your price in exchange for you giving me terms. What I mean by that is I have, you want $150,000? I will give you $15,000 down. I will give you 7% a month, or 7%, yeah, uh, you know, annually. And you just give me 30 years to pay it off. And you got your price. You start there, see what they say. Because yeah. a bank isn't going to give you that deal. You, your goal is to not deal with the banks. If you go in through the front door, you typically don't have to worry about W-2s. You don't have to worry about 1099s. You don't have to worry. I mean, you should be employed, obviously. You want to make sure you're going to make the payment because if not, they're, they're going to take the property back in a foreclosure. But you can negotiate. You can negotiate your down payment. You can negotiate your interest rate. And you're not negotiating with a banker or a loan officer. It's peer-to-peer. The way it's always been prior to the 1930s, um, the Roosevelt era, and the 1970s, the Nixon era, when they brought in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that's knowing the fact that the seller owns the property. It's all paid off. Because if they still owe the bank, then they got to make their responsible for making those payments to the the bank to get the to pay off the loan. Exactly right. So there's ways to go about doing that. So another slick way to do that is let's say, let's use this as an example, right? We'll use our 150. So if they owe $10,000 and you offer to give them a $15,000, let's say that the the seller owes 10,000 on their mortgage and the buyer gives them a $15,000 down payment, they can pay their loan off. The buyer wants to make sure you do a title search. You you know you do you make sure to see what kind of liens are on there. We can that's why you approach a title company, whether you're a seller of a property or you're a buyer of a property. You want the title company to look under the hood. You want them to make sure title is clear. I would highly recommend getting an appraisal to make sure that you're not overpaying or under. If you are underpaying for the property, great, but you don't want to overpay too much. Uh, I don't mind overpaying on a property if I'm getting seller financing. But I want to make sure that I'm not overpaying by hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if I do plan on holding it for 30 years. Yeah. So this is the, the slick way that I was mentioning. So let's say that they it's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar loan, but they owe eighty thousand. Now you as the buyer go, I don't have eighty thousand dollars as down payment. Well, there's two things they can do. They can do uh, something called a wraparound mortgage, just like what you, mm-hmm. you know, what I just recommended. If the lender will allow them, if their current lender will allow them, if not, what they can do is they can uh, hold a second mortgage, which is similar to a wraparound mortgage. So you can you can come to them and say, "Look, I'll give you the eighty thousand to pay off your senior lien, right, to underlying debt, and then the remaining uh, seventy thousand I will pay you over time, and I'll have you paid off in five years." Great. So how do you do that? Now you go to a bank and you say, hey, Mr. Banker, Mrs. Banker, Mr. Mortgage Lender, Mrs. Mortgage Lender, I have a $150,000 property, but I only need an $80,000 loan. Banks are going to jump on that. They're going to be your best friend. They're going to very easily... I shouldn't say very easily, but it's going to be way easier to get a loan on an $80,000 property, a $150,000 property for an $80,000 loan, because it's like 
50, 60% LTV, loan to value. So it's very, very safe for a bank to do that. That's another way to get creative. But a wraparound mortgage or having the seller carry a second are the two fancy and slick ways to get that done. It's possible. Look, you may talk to three, four, five, 10, 13 different sellers and say, absolutely not. I want my money or nothing. Yeah. But I mean, I can tell you from many, many years of history, there's always someone out there that's going to say yes. It may take you three hours, it may take you 30 days, but there's someone out there that will say yes. Yeah. And so for the seller, then you said that they can do foreclosure if the buyer is not paying. So they go that route, the example you just gave and Mm -hmm. realizing, okay, the buyer is not paying because they didn't go to the bank. And can the seller do the foreclosure? Sure. Absolutely. And that's why you go through a title company. I highly recommend that you do not go, oh, the title costs are $2,500. Let's just forget that. Let's just Let's shake on it, you know? Mm-hmm. No way. That is the, the kiss of death for both the seller and the buyer. You want to make sure that a closing agent or a title company pulls title, that they properly document the mortgage loan. And then it, it, you know, if depending on the state, I'll just use the state of Texas because there's a lot of business in the seller carry space in Texas. There's also something called a deed of trust, which tethers the mortgage note to the actual property. You want to make sure that the title agent instructs that. They put a warranty deed in place. They record it properly on title. So it telegraphs to the world that I owe you money for this property. And if I stop paying, that I can't go out and swindle someone into believing that I don't owe you any money. Because that could happen if you don't use a title company. Yeah, I've seen it. So always, always, always use a title company. An attorney doesn't have to be an attorney. Attorneys do charge more. A title company will get the job done. There are some states that require you to use an attorney. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be, it could be Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or attorney states. I think Maryland, there's a couple of them. States like California and Texas, our title companies are just fine. They're way cheaper. They're just as effective, especially for a very simple transaction like a property purchase. Yeah, this is great. This is insightful, especially the fact that these are options for self-employed individuals, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, sometimes you get door closed in your face because you don't have the V2s, you don't have the regular income and blah, 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 you know it. Yes. So (laughs) you want to target this is fertile ground right now. It wasn't fertile ground pre-COVID and even during COVID because everyone was getting stim checks, stimulus checks. So everyone was flush with cash. So everyone was still overbidding by 20, 50, $100,000 on properties. And then once the Fed started raising interest rates, the party's over. So now over the next, I think right now and going into the next three, four, five months, and maybe even beyond, depending if the Fed decides to start lowering interest rates, now is fertile ground for folks, entrepreneurs like you and myself and other folks out there, and even if you're not an entrepreneur, to start looking for, if you're trying to buy a property, look, even if you get a realtor, you say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Realtor, find me properties that have been sitting on the market for six months and let's find out why. And then let's see if they'll be, if they're willing to carry paper. And then if they are, then, you know, again, reach out to a company like ours, or you just go to our website, you can see exactly how to structure that loan what makes it attractive for a borrower, what makes it attractive for a lender, because those are two different things. What makes it attractive for a lender, just 
do the exact opposite. And that's what makes it attractive for a borrower. So we can talk about that in, in greater detail, but you want to target properties that have been sitting on the market for a while. I can tell you right now in our home state of California, where our headquarters is located in the San Francisco Bay Area, which was the craziest real estate market ever, uh, you know, past 10 years. Right now, properties are dropping. Property values are dropping because the stocks of Facebook and Google and Tesla and all these stocks that support that economy are dropping. So that was always what kept the property prices were high, were the stock prices of all the employees that are making $450,000 a year for a 23-year-old kid that was outbidding you know, a 70-year-old person $400,000 on a you know, million-dollar property that's 1,100 square feet. It's ridiculous, but they're mm-hmm. finally coming back down to earth. So these markets, Austin, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, the, 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 the island of Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, they're all starting to see decline. It may not be bargain basement prices, but there's definitely sellers out there that are going to panic sell. And you can be the lucky person that captures that panic sales. Nice. Well, but yeah, this has been super insightful. Like I said, thank you for, for sharing so much knowledge. Um, tell us about your morning routine real quick. How do you get them dressed up and show up? <laughs> <laughs> the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. It really boils down for me. I am very uh, health driven. I'm an active uh, person. I am in the gym. I do, uh, I'm an indoor rock climber, outdoor rock climber when I get a chance. What you put into your body has a lot to do with how you perform. I, I you know, I don't, I, I don't like to use the word. Let's just call it eating habits. I don't like to say diet. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. But the eating yeah. habits, when you eat, how you eat, how much you eat, when you stop eating, what the distance between the last time you put a piece of food in your mouth to the next time you put a piece of food in your mouth. Someone will call that cyclical fasting or, or intermittent fasting. Intermittent. Mm-hmm. Yep. This all is uh, very much so ingrained in my my routine. I will tell you that I've been I've always been a night owl, so I've always done my best work at one o'clock in the morning. And I, it turns out that's not the best way to go. So the way I wake up, dress up, and show up is I make sure a hundred percent that I am burning more calories that I'm intaking at least five days a week. doesn't have to be every day, but at least five days a week. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to move as uh, because I am chained to this desk a lot of the time, (laughs) uh, pretty much uh, like a lot of people out there. So I don't do a lot of activity. I try to make sure that I am active uh, on my free time. And I can't stress this enough, sleep. And I know this is so basic, but a body and a mind can't function unless you get the proper amount of sleep. And that even, I'm even starting to learn how to not look at this, you know, before Mm -hmm. I go to bed, it's tough. I'm still stumbling through that process, but I, like we all are, but that's a a very big thing. Now I I would love to tell you that I wake up and I do yoga and I meditate every (laughs) single day. That is absolutely not the case. I do it when I can, but for me, the Zen motion of strength training, uh, rock climbing, biking, swimming, this, this for me, I can meld meditation or a meditative state into that. So that is my routine in the morning. And, you know, I typically don't eat. I do uh, practice the uh, uh, intermittent fasting. So, and I have been since uh, 2016, wow, a long time. And it's hard for me to eat prior to that. So I, I, I don't like to eat heavy 
until a lot of my heavy lifting is done for the day. But other people need a big breakfast uh, to, to get energized. So it really depends. I would just say, listen to your body. But if you are not kind to you, this is, this is what my wife and I say. Please be kind to your future self. I want to be kind to my future Abby by eating well now and getting uh, current Abby into the habits so it can benefit future Abby right. 20, 30, 40 years from now. And it took me a long time, still taking me a long time to really envision how to do that. And even what future Abby looks like, what, you know, future Abby does, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot that I'm kind of working with there, but I would, I would, from the, the, the little experience that I have on that journey, I would share those thoughts with you yeah. and your audience. I just started intermittent fasting. I think it's um, 12 to 8 now. And if my daughter Good. goes to sleep by 8 p.m., it's 12 to 9. Um, the latest. I'm not eating after that. So what are your hours? Uh, I, uh, as I mentioned, I am uh, late. I, mm -hmm. I work till sometimes 7, 8 o'clock. And then I'm in the gym, which I know isn't great. But for me, it works. I'll, I'll go to the gym yeah. at like 8. And I'll be in there like 9.30. So I don't eat the last bite of food usually passes my lips around 10 30 11 and then i won't eat until about 4 4 30 in the next day but really really but it didn't start that way okay so where it started before is i would wake up i, I would eat around midnight you know I, I say midnight it would be 11 between 11 and 12 and then and i know people will say well you shouldn't eat late at night it's not good for you and that that may be it's actually turning out that that is the case i'm learning that to be the case now <laughs> especially through my uh, exploration into traditional chinese medicine but that's a whole other conversation but it used to be look i sleep for 8 hours when i wake up i just don't eat for 4 hours you know it's e easy enough so uh, i'll 12 i fast 12 and then i eat 12 and i fast 12 and i eat 12 and every day I would try to push out another 15 minutes, another 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Here's the trick. When you get hungry and you feel like you need to eat, sometimes people want to pull out a popcorn or potato chips or crackers, the salty snack. Yeah. It's not the food that you're asking for. It's the salt. This is what I do. I take a, a mason jar. I fill it with either room temperature water or cold water. I boil some other water, and I fill the rest of the mason jar up. I take a half a lime or a half a lemon, squeeze it in. I take a pinch or more of pink Himalayan salt. I pop yep. it in, and that will buy me another 45 minutes to an hour of staving off the hunger. It's a very easy way, a very easy hack to push out, to go from 12 hours to 11 hours to 10 hours, and the next thing you know, you're 16.8 or you know 18.4. Now I've gone as long as 25 hours and it's, you know, it's good. I don't need, you don't need to do that on a regular basis, but what I've learned after uh, doing this for six and a half years is that you do not need, you're going to hit a point where you are, you hit your goal. I, I succeeded. I won. I got to my goal. So you don't have to do that forever. It's, you should definitely, you know, it's like maintenance. When you go to the gym, you hit your, your fitness goal you don't have to keep pushing through that fitness goal. You just have to maintain your physique, your health. So there's, I'm at the point right now where I'm maintaining. So I can mm -hmm. eat. I don't have to fast four days a week if I don't want to. And then I can do two 24-hour fasts. And then boom, it's the same thing as That's fasting. Good. Yeah, but you, you'll you get the cadence of it depending on your body type and your body's biology. Yeah, you got to listen to the body for sure. I do the That's same right. um, Himalayan salt and 
lemon in the water and in water, warm water every morning. And yes. that does help curb your appetite. Um, kind of yes, it you, does. Let you, and it gives you the electrolytes that you need. Sometimes we wake up when we're deprived of that. Um, so we need to kind of um, reset the system, electrolytes. That Absolutely. Really gives you that, that energy boost that you need. So I do it every morning, but I'm working on not eating from 12 until 12, which is lunchtime. So wait yeah, until lunch and not eating. Absolutely. And the other thing, I, you know, you just uh, dawned on me here, it, hydration is a yeah. massive, like people go to sleep dehydrated. You're mm-hmm. not going to wake up ready to take on the world. I would actually, guz- like in my earlier journey, I would actually guzzle, uh, well, not guzzle, but I would I would try to have three cups of water you know, within an hour of going to bed, granted, you may be having more trips to the restroom in the middle of the night, but, you know, you're going to wake up hydrated. And then if you, you shock your system with more hydration in the morning, you're ready to go. I mean, you are ready to go. So I can't stress that enough. And uh, lastly, my fitness journey has taught me that regardless if you're vegan, I've done it all, vegan, keto, paleo, you know, Mediterranean, whatever your preference is, regular diet, whatever the preference is, mm-hmm. the what you want to do is this. You want to try to eat as little food as possible that comes out of a bag, a box, a can. What you want to do is you want to process as much of your own food as possible. I know this sounds like a pain in the neck, but instead of buying lettuce all chopped up in the bag, I try to buy lettuce that I have to chop up and wash. Yeah. Instead of buying uh, soup in a can, I'll try to throw together my own soup with like uh, broth, a cup of fresh vegetables, you know, whatever the case is, whole foods is the key, oh, yeah. clean whole foods, whether it's plant-based whole foods, animal-based, a little bit of both. You want to make sure you eat as many whole foods as possible, period. Eating clean. Yeah, eating, eating clean, clean and that will set you up for the day, the energy that you need to be to think and be clear and then have clarity so you can That's show correct. up the better self. So thank you for sharing that, Abby. Um, tell us, what can we thank connect you. with you? So uh, I can be reached through my website, or I should say the company website at www.amerinoteexchange.com. The word exchange spelled with an X. So it's A-M-E-R-I-N-O-T-E. X-C-H-A-N-G-E.com, I am not too prevalent on social media, but I do have a Twitter handle. If you can find me at my uh, name, Abby Shemish. And of course, our company, Amerinote Exchange is Amerinote X at Amerinote X on Twitter. But I definitely appreciate your uh, having me as a guest. It was really fun to be here. Um, Dr. Lou Mead, and I really appreciate the uh, platform and the ability to share. Yes, thank you for that. I'm really glad you came on because I just started reading um, Intelligent Investor and was my was your was the customer's yacht, and those huh. are really classics on yeah. you know investing and understanding the market. So this also shared some insight into my knowledge um, toolbox. So thank you for for sharing. Sure. What are you reading sure. these days? Oh, right now I have. So I'm reading Silva Mind Control Method, which is a, 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 a book that was written about 70 years ago on how to expand the power of your mind through yeah. meditation and uh, imagination. I also have a couple of books. Of course, The Bitcoin Standard is which the one I just finished, which is one of my favorites. It's around here somewhere. And I have 
drawing a blank here, but it's the, um, I haven't started it yet. It's, uh, I want to say Paul Tudor Jones or one of the in, uh, hedge fund managers. It's the, the history of the economies going across time and space. And I will tell you another one that I think your readers should look into. It's definitely a heavier read. It's a little bit, it's, it's heavy, but it's, and it's dense. But the fourth turning is an amazing social uh, economic data stream going back to medieval times on the booms and the busts of economy and the different generations and how those generations repeat almost like seasons. It's highly fascinating. And I'm actually, this is going to sound a little esoteric, but we are, I'm actually dabbling in how those socioeconomic cycles overlap with astrological and astronomical cycles. So uh, not necessarily telling horoscopes, but you know, planets, just like anything else, like if you have a planet the size of Jupiter that bleeds off electromagnetic energy, that if Einstein is correct, weighs down space and time around it, if Jupiter starts circling us, just like if you drop a, pond, a rock in a pond and you have a lily pad over here, the lily pad's going to start shimmering if the waves start hitting. So if uh, Einstein is correct, electromagnetic waves are created by gravity, which it has different energy signatures from different planets, Saturn, Jupiter. And these energy signatures have been followed by people that have been on this planet way longer than we have. There may be some science there, I think. And I'm not suggesting that yeah. I know it all, but I'm very interested in seeing how cycles overlap in different sciences and different genres, I should say, or scientific genres, how they overlap. So I'm very interested in this. I'm doing a self, uh, in, uh, kind yeah. Of, yeah, self experiment right now into that. Cool. And maybe we could talk about that at a later time. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us, Abby. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And I thank you again for the opportunity. Of course. Well, all right, morning enthusiasts. That's it for today's show. Thank you for tuning in. If you love the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or Google Play. While you're at it, tell a friend about the show. Be sure to visit bestmorningroutineever.com and our Facebook group to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic free bonus content. Until next time.